Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? I'm getting antsy, Amy. Yeah? I got one week left until vacation for a week. Guess what? You've got one week left until vacation for a week. That's correct. So with... But, but your vacation is a backup plan. That's right. Mine was kind of an audible. Like we didn't plan yes. on having vacation, but we're like, well, we've got time to do this now because everything in the summer right. got canceled. So we, yep. we booked Ridgecrest. We've talked about that. And going family camp, Ridgecrest. Yes. So we were planning to go visit some great friends of ours who are planting a church in Hawaii. And we were very Suffering excited. Jesus. I know. We were very excited. Could not wait to go and see what was happening down there. And uh, COVID came. And part of the way that Hawaii is dealing with that, they're in kind of a phased reopening. But if you come from the mainland to Hawaii, you have to go through a 14-day quarantine where you cannot leave the place where you're staying at all until two weeks have passed. And our intention was to go for one week. So as we've said, I'm bad at math, but I'm good enough to know there really wasn't any reason to go. So we had to cancel that trip. So we're going to the lake instead. And it's just a couple of hours. Not quite the same. That's right. Just a couple. There's a lake nearby, but we are, uh, we've decided to go to a lake there, Lake Norman in Charlotte, so that we can catch up with my, uh, some, a family member that's going to come, a niece, and hang out with our kids and everything. So we're, we're looking forward to that. It'll be nice. But yep. Yep. We'll just be a couple of hours away over in Black Mountain. That's right. Because you'll be in Ridgecrest. So, so very cool. Lots yes, of great places in North Carolina. Lakes, mountains, beaches, everything. Everyone should come. You got it all there. You I really know. do. I know. And living like North in... North Carolina has it all. That's right. And living in the Raleigh area is great because you're just a couple of hours from the mountains, a couple hours from the beach. We do have lakes really close by here. Lots of great you know, spots to go camping, things like that. I just got to get my RV. I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming. And golf courses galore as well. Yeah, I don't really play a lot of golf, but in Wake Forest here, we have the golf course that Arnold Palmer used to play on. So that's pretty fun. Well, that's neat. All yep. right. Well, cool. Yep. So we got, we got another week. We'll still have an episode on July 3rd, though. We're still going right. to do an episode because we, we are committed and we're going to yes. do the episode for July the 3rd. Because in five plus years, Amy, we still have not missed a week. We've never missed a couple week. A couple weeks ago, it got really close, though. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a lot. Very busy. I think I had been, uh, we were driving. And you were traveling was, all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't, almost didn't happen. And, but like, That's the latest we've ever recorded. At like that's six right. or seven o'clock on a Friday night. That, yep. was, that was wild. All right. But hey, we've got a very very special episode this week. So we're going to get to that. It's kind of the second half of the episode. So we're going to jump into things this week. Big week out of the executive committee. Roland Slade was elected as the chairman. He becomes the first African-American chairman in the 103 plus year history of the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. Yes. And this was a really uh just kind of incredible experience all the way around because it wasn't the first meeting that the executive committee has had to via zoom because we've everybody's had to do that a good bit and and even in the process well part of the cancellation of the annual that's meeting right. that was, was via zoom. that was via zoom so that's not been um abnormal but doing you know uh, all the business that they had to do 
was a very interesting experience. Everyone sort of, we're used to being all in the same room, dressed up, you know, kind of the, the chairs and tables lined. And instead, I was, you know, making sure that my lighting was right and that, you know, you, you could see and that there was nothing distracting and, you know, making sure that you're muted. So if the dog barks, things like that. So very different experience of an EC meeting than, of course, what we anticipated, which was to be it in Orlando. Um, but we did have, uh, we did have elections for the executive committee, and yes, Roland Slade. So he's pastor of Meridian Baptist Church in El Cajon, California. He was unopposed, and so therefore was unanimously elected by ballot vote. Um, usually when someone is unopposed, it just happens by acclamation, but just as an opportunity for everyone to actually register their vote, Mike Stone did call for a ballot to mark that. And so it was, it, it was kind of a special moment and it was a really special moment for Pastor Slade uh, and a great, great thing to, to see and, and hear from him. Yes. And, and we've got the audio from his, uh, I, I wouldn't call it an acceptance speech, Just but, but I, remarks. I, did want, I do want people to hear this though. He had some remarks afterwards. We're going to play that audio for you right here. I thank you for the nomination. I thank you for the vote. I thank my wife and my children we talked about it here at home. Um, I thank the Meridian Baptist Church, a church that took, uh, took a chance on me 16 years ago. I'd never been a senior pastor. I'd been a staff member and a missionary, but I'd never led a congregation. And uh, the Meridian congregation chose a man that didn't look like them. And what we had in common was the gospel of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And brothers and sisters, that's my commitment to you as I lead the executive committee in the future. We all know baptism numbers are down. We know that churches are closing. But we also know that the problem in our country is sin. And so we've, we've got a job ahead of us, and we've got to pull together and the message that we're sending today, not only to SBC, but to the world, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. And so I give you my commitment. I'm going to do my very best to encourage us at every opportunity to share Jesus with people who do not know him. So thank you again. Thank you for caring for me. Many of you have sent me messages, and I appreciate that. Um, I think I, I share with the, with the rock, guys that um, have gone on with the Lord who were uh, my mentors along the way. And we just lost one of them. Not lost, but he went on to glory just recently, Dr. William McPherson. And I can go on and name names uh, of men who took the time to pour into my life because I certainly didn't believe that I would be in this position. And so, again, thank you. And we praise God together and let's pray together and let's stay together because I've learned that a family that prays together stays together. So God bless you all. 
All right. And that was a, that was a really special moment when it happened. So I'm glad that we have it to sort of listen, listen back to as well. All right. So after that, there were some other elections. Uh, Tom Tucker from Rock Hill, South Carolina was elected as vice chair Joe Knott from Raleigh, North Carolina was, re- was reelected as secretary. And then also four committee chairs, Robin Harry from Brentwood, Tennessee was elected chairman of the committee on convention finances and stewardship development. Rob Showers from Virginia was elected chairman of the committee on convention missions and ministry. Jim Gregory from Mountain Home, Idaho uh, elected to chair the Committee on Southern Baptist Relations, and Rod Martin from Destin, Florida, was elected to chair the Committee on Convention Events and Strategic Planning. And these are all new committees. That was part of restructuring that took place back in February. And so they will be the incoming committee chairs for those, uh, which is a little bit different because normally you have to have served on a committee for a certain amount of time before you can become chair. But because these are brand new committees, they were just, you know, anyone could be put on. So, um, so that happened after that. And then we had some other business that we went through. One thing before we get to the other business, Amy, we also had, again, two people running for a position without a winner a couple of times. That's correct. It was like flashbacks to 2016. It, it was. It was. That was kind of an interesting And I knew moment. that when, when, when I heard right. that this was the requirement, right. I knew it was going to happen because yes. of so, course it's going to happen. Right. So the requirement was that when you have elections that are opposed, so like Tom Tucker uh, in the vice chair election was – he was nominated. Stacey Bramlett was also nominated for vice chair. So in this particular proceeding, which everything sort of depends on different bylaws, how Robert's rules plays in. But in this case, you had to have a majority of the entire committee. And so that would include people who were not able to be on the call. Yeah. So you're, And we only had about 72, 73 of the 82. Right. So, so you calculate the majority from that sort of higher threshold. Yeah, 82. So you needed 42 votes. Right. And so then when you only have, you know, 70 or so people there, it just, the the chances are, are greater that someone might not meet that threshold. So yeah, that actually happened and a couple happened. of times. And like three and, times, I think. Right. And so when that happened, I think it was twice, but I can't remember. So when that happened, then you just call for another vote and in both cases, some people switched their votes, and then it pushed uh, one person over into the majority. But it yeah. was it was so, very it was flashback. Leave it to the Southern yes. Baptist to have two people and not have a winner in an election. Yes, we're pros well, at that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, this one was a little more procedurally normal yeah. than the than the uh, presidential election in two thousand. 16, but right. fascinating. So All other right. business, the other big business item. Yes. We got to change our travel plans, Amy. Change That's your travel right. plans. Cancel That's your right. reservations. Yes. You're not going to Salt Lake in 2025. That's right. If so, you are, you're going to be there by yourself because we're all going to Dallas. Yes, we are. So originally the annual meeting for 2025 was supposed to be in Salt Lake City. Um, but because of, it was a number of factors, the date was going to be later in the month, things like that. The executive committee voted to move Salt Lake City to 2027. And then 
to set Dallas as the location for the 2025 annual meeting. Yeah, so that's going to be a biggie because that's going to be the 100th anniversary of the cooperative program celebration yes. for that. Yes. So, you know, still looking forward to going to Salt Lake City, but it's just going to have to wait a couple years. That's so, right. But so you can rebook those hotel reservations that I know all of you had for Salt Lake City in 2025. So just book those well, for I'm 2027. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess since hotel reservations don't open up until October 1st before the meeting, no one had reservations. But that's just a guess. Maybe there was a really, well, it was really week early planner. You know, yeah. they're planning a week week out, you know. They're uh-huh. going to take that extra week. I'm sure. I don't know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. That's it. Okay. I think you just need anyway, to work your so way yeah, out of So, yeah, make sure you mark your uh, calendar for that. What I think happened? it may come what up between now and then. What else happened? Tell us. The other big piece of news was the authorization of the executive committee to possibly, if needed, apply for payroll protection program funding, uh, the Small Business Administration loans for that. So, that was authorized, if needed, because the executive committee cannot borrow money. Committee approval is needed for that. So that's the other big piece of business that came out of the meeting. And that brought us to Wednesday, Amy, and a fantastic panel on race in America led by Dr. Floyd featuring Roland Slade, the new chairman of the executive committee, Charlie Dates from Progressive Baptist Church in the Chicagoland area, K. Marshall Williams, good friend of the pod up there in Philadelphia at Nazarene Baptist Church. Willie McLaurin, one of our co-workers over at the executive committee. He's the vice president for Great Commission Relations and Mobilization. And then also Kevin Smith, another good friend of the pod over in Maryland, Delaware. He's the state exec for the Maryland, Delaware state convention over there. Yes. So, and that was a fantastic discussion, by the way. It really was. And I, uh, I, I watched it live, but I had, I've gone back and, and listened to, to things again as well. Tons of people tuned in and I, I, I watched those comments just rolling along as it was going. And I, I think one of the things I really appreciated about it is that, uh, is that there were a lot of great questions that were thrown out there, but then, you know, an hour, honestly, that seems a lot sometimes for a panel, but it felt like it was just getting started. Yes. Like, yes. It, about 40 it, minutes in, it really like kicked up to another level and yeah. things really just took off. It was amazing. Yeah. And so and I was like, I, man, this could keep going. Right. So what I liked is the questions were thrown out there, but then the panelists were just sort of given the space and the time to really flesh out, you know, what they were discussing. So I, I, I thought it was thoroughly enlightening and, would highly recommend anyone who hasn't gotten to listen to it yet. We have an article in the show notes, but then also you can go to Facebook and watch the video as it is still there. All right. Some other news, a couple of items here over at Southeastern. We'd mentioned this a few weeks ago, whenever we talked about their trustee meeting that they had delayed the approval of a budget for 2020 and 2021. Uh, They actually approved that and it includes a cut of 3%. They have dropped it down to just over $30 million. It's a 3% cut of $932,000 from the previous thing. But on the other side, they did also cut tuition by 5%. So doing something to help the students out, drop that down by 5%. Also included in the cuts were uh, increases in teaching load for some of the faculty. The president's salary will be reduced by 6%. Members of the cabinet will take 5% cuts and other full-time staffs will receive reductions based on their base salary. So uh, just trying to be good stewards of the funding that they have over at Southeastern and make it through this economic crisis caused by 
the COVID-19 global pandemic. So we're seeing that across the board at our seminaries and institutions. Southeastern, the latest to announce that. Over to IMB, Amy. Clyde Metter has re-retired. He has. We covered his first retirement. We're old enough to remember when Clyde retired the first time, Amy. We are indeed, and our podcast is old enough to have covered it twice. So so Clyde Metter retired in May 2016 after 41 years of missionary service and serving in executive roles as well. But he was unanimously elected by trustees to serve kind of in between David Platt and Paul Chitwood. Well, 45 years of service to Southern Baptists. And, you know, we, we talked about Clyde the first time he retired. Uh, That's talking right. about him again here. So and he go stayed, back, he stayed and, on. He stayed yeah, on he after. Stayed on. Yeah. After Paul yeah. Chitwood got there, he had yeah. been interim president between David Platt and Paul Chitwood. Then he stayed on in, uh, it's his various interim roles. So as yes. Paul Chitwood was kind of filling out his leadership team, he had Clyde Metter right by his side. Yes. So I'm not sure there's a job at the IMB that Clyde has not done. Maybe not. So he Maybe not. he very much, you know, gets a, a well-earned rest after all of this. Yes, yes. So congratulations to him again, uh, Clyde. We, we've met him on several occasions. And uh, I think he's in some capacity at Southeastern at one point, too. Um, yes, mission, he's done like a... Residence or yes, something? Yes, yeah, something like that. Missionary in residence or something like that. He and uh, Tom Elif as well. Yes. So, uh, yeah, congratulations yeah, again to Clyde. And thank you for a literally a lifetime of service to Southern Baptists. So uh, we appreciate all that he has done through the International Mission Board for the kingdom and uh, wish him all the best in retirement. Okay, Amy, second half of the show here, and it's, we're going to start with my favorite part of the week. This week in SBC history, Amy, blow our minds. All right, this is a big one. We're going to go back to 1995. Very important date, June 20th, was the SBC annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, where a resolution was passed, and it was the resolution on racial reconciliation on the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, This is something that has been talked about the whole time that I have been a Southern Baptist, which really was in about 2000, so five years after that. But obviously, I mean, I was not there. I have read up on this more, studied it recently. I actually went down to the historical library and archives when I was in town and I watched the debate on video and just to kind of take in what was happening. Um, the only thing that I would say I miss is that back then when they would do the video, they didn't span the crowd. So I didn't actually get to see the hands going up and all the ballots, but I did get to hear all the debate. Um, it was just fascinating. But it's interesting because we are having... A lot of conversations. We just had one, uh, the 60-minute conversation on race in America, but this is not new. We were talking about this very thing this week in SBC history, but it is a story that I really cannot fully tell because I wasn't there. You know who can? Yes. Richard Land. That's right. That's right. And guess what, Amy? We have a special interview with Richard Land, the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and we reached out to him because we knew uh, in, in all of our research 
that uh and 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 I knew this before but really as we were researching it that he really was at the center of all the discussions surrounding the development of and the passing of that resolution when he was at that time it was the Christian Life Commission and so we reached out and asked him would he talk to us because we wanted to hear sort of story a story from the front lines about it yeah and so we have that conversation here Joining us today here on SBC This Week is Dr. Richard Land. We are glad to have him. He's the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as the current president at Southern Evangelical Seminary in North Carolina. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Land. I'm delighted to be with you. Now, we asked you to come on to talk about a kind of a historic moment in the Southern Baptist Convention in 1995, the Resolution on Racial Reconciliation passed at the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, not many of our listeners were around the Southern Baptist Convention at that time. I mean, 95, that's 25 years ago. I was in high school. Amy was in college. I mean, we, yep. we were young pups back then. And, yes. uh, but, but you were part of this passage of this resolution. And as that moment approached, how did the conversation on drafting this resolution begin? Well, it started um, several years earlier. Uh, when I was elected as, pres- as president of what was then the Christian Life Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in 1988, I was the first undeniably conservative resurgence agency head to be elected head of a commission. And so it was a big deal. And, it, and, and the, this, the Christian Life Commission was not just any agency. It was, it was the, the, um, the, pet, the pet of the, and the favorite of the uh, uh, socially liberal and sometimes theologically liberal Southern Baptists who used the Christian Life Commission to get together and, 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 um, encourage each other in their social activism, including civil rights and, and, um, and uh, integration. And so there was a lot of speculation that, that the commission was going to shift gears because we were now going from being pro-choice to being an undeniably aggressively pro-life agency. And um, I wanted to make certain that people understood that I, I for me, um, the fact that the Christian Life Commission was on the right side of the race issue in the 1960s when too many entities in Southern Baptist life and American life were on the wrong side was very important to me as a Southern Baptist teenager in the 1960s because Dr. King had been a hero of mine since the early 60s. And so um, uh, my, my, I made very positive comments about Dr. King in my interview with the search committee and in, in, in my interview with um, with the uh, full board, which was a, was a five-hour interview, by the way, wow. was, was any any trustee could ask any question they wanted to ask. It was a real it was a real Donnybrook. Um, the um, and and this provoked one of our trustees, who was very conservative, to make some very negative statements about Dr. King in the um, in, in the in the trustee meeting, which were reported in the press. And so uh, I felt it was really important. Um, I stated to the to the board that if they elected me, that uh, I did not see this the race issue as a uh, a right or left issue, uh, or uh, a Republican Democrat issue, but a right and wrong issue, and that I was going to maintain the emphasis on um, um, integration and on uh, racial reconciliation. And then when I took office a month later, um, I announced that our first conference was going to be a conference on, on race relations. Which we and I invited Dr. Valentine to come and speak, and Dr. Val- and Dr. Valentine was shocked when I called him and asked him to. Come. I said, "Look, Floyd, I said, you know, my friends are going to be really mad at me for inviting you, and your friends are going to be really mad at you if you accept. 
but this issue is bigger than our friends. And, and, and it's important that it be seen that there's going to be a seamless passing of the torch that on the issue of race, there's not going to be any change in what the, you know, in what the Christian Life Commission does. And he agreed and he came, he told me later, he said, man, you know, my friends really were ticked. I said, yeah. I said, I had two of my conservative friends. I had to hold the phone out here because they were yelling at me so loud over the phone because I'd invited Floyd. We had a very successful conference. And then I, we had what the ERLC, I'm sorry, what the Christian Life Commission calls a consultation. Um, where you invite an equal number of people um, to come in from different sides and you have an off-the-record, two-day, um, intense discussion about an issue and try to come to some common ground. And so we invited six um, uh, black Southern Baptist leaders and we had six um, white Southern Baptist leaders and we held a consultation. Off-the-record, no holds barred. We had a good discussion. We started with dinner, had a great discussion. Um, and then the next morning, we convened for breakfast uh, right there in the SBC building. And um, uh, the pastor who had been elected as the, as the spokesperson for the, for the uh, black contingent started off by saying, well, Dr. Lynn, we caucused last night because you white people are very complicated people. Um, you don't always mean what you say and you don't always say what you mean. So we caucused last night and we came to the conclusion that you really meant what you said. You really want to get a bit serious about racial reconciliation. So we're going to tell you the truth. <laughs> and so they did. And the first thing he said was, uh, you don't understand how badly you have hurt us. We don't mean you personally. We mean white Christians. It's one thing to be discriminated against by white people. It's an entirely different thing to be discriminated against by brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, you know, that statement sort of bounced around in my conscience and in my soul. And I couldn't get it out of my mind. I, I, I thought, you know, and, and it helped me to understand that we had passed at least 15 resolutions, some of them really good resolutions, condemning racism, you know, uh, decrying discrimination against um, African-Americans uh, as a convention. Our resolutionary stance from at least the late 50s onward had been pretty good. But all of those resolutions were written in the third person. We condemn the issue. We condemn behavior. But we had never taken responsibility and for our complicity uh, that the Southern Baptist Convention was born out of slavery. Um, it was born because the Triennial Convention would not, um, uh, would not um, send a missionary out to the Native Americans who was a slaveholder. And that we had been at least complicit in defending slavery and in defending um, Jim Crow. And, um, you know, so I, and I started, I talked with, I, I talked with people about it, black and white um, uh, over the next year or so. And we began to build a consensus and said, you know, we need to have a resolution where we acknowledge our complicity as a convention. And we acknowledge the pain and the suffering that it caused. And we express sorrow over it. And we ask for the forgiveness of our African-American brothers and sisters, because asking for forgiveness empowers them in a way that a third person um, statement doesn't. And um, then we began looking and we had to deal with this issue. Some of some of some people objected that we're not Mormons. You know, we can't we can't repent for our ancestors. Yeah, this well, is the repentance debate. There was a debate on repentance, right? That's right. I can't repent. For what you know, I have um, a great great a great 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 grandfather who was a slaveholder, and uh, I can't repent before God for him. That's between him and God, and I can't get any points with God 
but the fact that on my mother's side, I've got abolitionist ancestors. Um, they have to deal with God themselves on that issue, on those issues. But we can express responsibility and sorrow and regret over what the, uh, the, the background of the convention and, and the convention's complicity. I mean, look, the convention at least, at the very, at very least, acquiesced to Jim Crow and often defended Jim Crow and before that slavery. And so um, we dealt with that successfully. I, and, and so we started looking, okay, when can we do this? When's the best time to do this? Well, we were, by then we were coming up on the 1995 uh, by the sesquicentennial. And so I went to Jim Henry, who was then the president of the convention. And I said, Jim, we've got, a, we've got a, a, a lot to celebrate. Uh, so, you know, God's been good to Southern Baptists and, and Southern Baptists are a, a great people. But we've got some really dirty linen in the closet that we need to deal with first before we before we celebrate. And he agreed, and he agreed to suspend the rules of the convention. Now you understand, you know, better than most that for a convention that believes in salvation by grace alone through faith alone, we don't break rules easily, <laughs> especially convention rules. That's right. Um, but he he agreed to suspend the rules to bring in the resolutions committee two days early to start the resolution committee process. And to have a resolution, this resolution presented on the afternoon before we celebrated the sesquicentennial that night. And so we did. And, um, you know, I don't think anybody who was there um, will ever forget that moment. Um, you know, the, the realities of socioeconomic life in, in the United States in 1995 was that almost everyone that worked for the, for the Atlantic convention center was an African-American and they paid, they gave no evidence. They paid any attention to anything we did all week, except when we were debating that resolution, there were no brooms being pushed. There were no hamburgers being cooked. There were no hot dogs being served. I mean, they were watching us and we, we, uh, the, the only real objection was some people said, well, you know, we're condemning our ancestors and our ancestors were godly people. And, you know, Jim Henry asked me to reply, and I said, you know, I'm sure our ancestors were godly people, but they had a huge blind spot on race. And it's time that we acknowledge that, and it's time that we uh, expressed regret over the pain and the suffering that it's caused. And, and it passed, I would say it was a 98% vote. It was, it was really an overwhelming vote affirming um, the resolution. And, and evidently, it did lance the boil. Because, um, you know, we have more than tripled the number of Southern Baptists um, who are African-American uh, in, the, in the time since 1995. Um, and and uh, I had um, black pastors sending me uh, videos of, of uh, when he read the resolution um, and asked his church to vote to forgive us. Uh, there, were, there were tears streaming down the streets of the cheeks of people. And, you know, I, I, let me just say that. Um, I think African-Americans have been more patient with us as white people than I suspect I would have been had I been an African-American. Um, um, I, I marvel at Dr. King's ability to maintain his nonviolent stance and to say, you know, those that you would change, you must first love. And, and that helped me because I had a problem loving bigots. I really had a problem loving bigots. I knew God loved them, but I had a problem loving them. 
But when, if Dr. King could say, you know, uh, if I can love Bull O'Connor, if he can love Bull O'Connor, I can love Bull O'Connor. And, um, you know, I'm disappointed that we haven't come farther than we have in the 25 years since. It, it's really difficult for me to comprehend. It's been 25 years. Um, but we have made progress. And it's not enough. But I think we should take the progress as encouragement to finish the journey. Um, one thing that I have come to believe more and more with every passing year is that if we're going to get to fulfillment of Dr. King's dream, and, and I'm not ever going to give up on the dream. I'm sorry. I will never give up on the dream of a country where we're judged uh, not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. Only the church can get us there. Um, the salt of the law can change actions. It's only the light of the gospel that can change attitudes. The salt of the law can change behaviors, but it's only the light of the gospel that can change beliefs. And the salt of the law can change habits, but it's only the light of the gospel that can change hearts. And the law has taken us about as far as it can. Uh, if we're going to get the rest of the way there to real reconciliation, um, it's going to have to be gospel that takes us there. Maybe let's go back to the consultation itself. You know, you yeah. talk about your experience there. What did you see as maybe sort of the experience of others? What did you see in terms of relationship building, things like that? And how is that a lesson for us about how getting in a room and having hard yeah. conversations can make the difference? Well, you know, um, I was reminded, um, of something Bill Clinton said, um, Bill Clinton, when he was president said, you know, it's very, very difficult to create situations in America where people can have honest discussions about race. And, and, you know, and as you reflect on that, the reason for that is that whenever we're having a conversation about race, there are lots of ghosts in the room with us. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the things I have come to understand more and more, even as recently as last week, is that the average white person has absolutely no idea of the, um, the racism that African-Americans are exposed to on a daily and a weekly basis. Because white people who are, who are bigots don't behave around them the way they do around black people. Um, I say last week, because my wife is, a, is, a, is some of you may know, is, a, is in private practice as a psychologist. She has a client, a middle-aged African-American man, um, uh, makes, in, does very well in business. And just last week, his 15-year-old daughter in a high school in Arizona was called the N-word. I mean, I, that shocked me. I mean, I mean, the idea that that can happen in the United States of America and it wouldn't be dealt with mm -hmm. by the high school authorities um, or by peers shocked me. Yeah. But he says, you know, that kind of stuff happens. And he said, you know, um, he said, people cross the street to walk on the different side of the street from me just because I'm a, a black man. And, you know, I mean, I, th I thought about that. And, you know, that would get really, really old, really, really quick. And, and, and I think most I've discovered many African-Americans just can't believe that we don't know it. We don't. Right. And we're horrified when we hear it. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that, that happens when you can get in a room and have an honest discussion about race is that um, that 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 African-Americans come to understand that white people really don't know. 
Mm-hmm. They, they really don't know. It's not that they're complicit. They really don't know. Um, for instance, during my, my uh, 25 years as head of the ERLC, uh, I had enough conversations uh, over the years that I, I, for instance, I don't know any, any uh, black male who has not had a bad experience with a policeman, at least mm-hmm. one. I have never had a bad experience with a policeman. When I see a policeman, I'm reassured. Uh, to me, they represent safety. They represent order. That's not the way they're seen by African-Americans and with good reason. Now, I'm not condemning all cops, a lot of great cops, but there's some bad ones. And we've got to, we've got to make it easier to get rid of the bad ones. I mean, this, 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 this person in, in Minnesota, this policeman uh, that killed, uh, murdered George uh, Floyd, he had something like 16 complaints against him in 17 years. But he couldn't be fired because of the police union. We've got to we've got to change that. We've got to get be able to get rid of the bad apples. We got to. We just got to. We just should not not expect any American to put up with that. But you know, I could see in that conversation, as we as it progressed, people they sort of put their foot out there in the water, and, and you know, I think that we began to have a more and more understanding of of. Um, the gap of the divide and and there was a generational thing i mean i think for instance the fact that uh, when i was elected i not only was the first undeniably conservative resurgence person mm-hmm. i was the youngest agency head by 13 years wow i was the i was the first baby boomer agency head when we went to our first interagency council meeting where i was the youngest by 13 years I mean, you know, they're all showing pictures of their grandkids and we're trying to find babysitters. I mean, the average age, I think, was about 60. And, and I, I am 41 and I'm the, I'm the youngest by 13 years. But then, of course, after me came the other boomers. Uh, and I do think the fact that I grew up, you know, I was a teenager when the civil rights movement was going on. And I went to an Ivy League college during the civil rights revolution. Um prepared me to deal with this issue in a way I think someone who had been raised in a completely segregated society would have had more difficulty. And I noticed this in the conversations, the younger blacks and the younger whites were able to get beyond certain things more quickly uh, than the older folks. So I do think that, that um, part of the progress is it makes it easier to have these conversations um, and to, um, but, you know, we've got to build uh, friendships. We've got to build relationships. Um, and that's going to happen only with intentionality. And since we've been the ones who've mostly historically shut them away, we have to take the initiative. And I, I don't mean just pulpit exchanges. I mean joint deacon retreats where you get to know each other as people. You take your deacons and I'll take my deacons and let's go, um, let's go out and, and let's have a weekend together and let's just talk. Wow. Now, one of those relationships, I guess that it may have been there beforehand, but I know it was probably formed or forged even greater during this was with you and Gary Frost. And Gary mm-hmm. was the second vice president of the convention at the time. Tell us about him and, and the role that he played in the resolution and, and what came to be in 95. Well, he, he was very helpful um, um, in, 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 in this whole process, the whole process. And by, and by the way, as part of this process, um, I hired... Now, remember, I took office in 1988. I hired the first African-American non-janitorial employee in the SBC building. Now, 
back then, you had not only the executive committee and not only the foundation, but you had the education commission, you had the stewardship commission, um, you had the historical commission, um, and you had uh, seminary extension as well as the ERLC. Mm -hmm. I hired the first non-custodial African-American employee. And I didn't realize what I'd done. I mean, I, I had people stopping me in, in the halls and saying, well, congratulations, Richard. That's really great. And I said, what? What'd I do? And they told me. <laughs> Once again, I hadn't realized. I mean, but that's pretty sad. I mean, that's just sad um, that, that our, our denomination was that segregated. Um, but Gary was very helpful. And, and Gary, I, I'll tell you, Gary took a lot of flack from, the black, from some elements of the black community. Um, for participating and for accepting the apology. You know, when, when we voted to um, uh, apologize, um, he then stepped to the platform and he accepted the apology. And um, I know he got some flack for that. He, he did. Um, um, and I, he, it took a lot of courage for him to do what he did. And, and I appreciate it. He, he was very courageous. So let's let's talk about that part. You you bring up apologizing. So we talked about kind of where repentance falls in. What what was to draw back the importance of talking in the first person? Um, the, what was different too is it wasn't just a resolution in the first person, but it actually mm -hmm. apologized. Like mm -hmm, it used mm -hmm. the word apologize. We did, and um, we did that. We did that with great intentionality. How was? How much, I mean, I guess I would just say, was that really controversial then? Did yes. you all get a ton of pushback? You know, we, because yes. now as we hear about it 25 years later, it's something that when I started participating in convention life had already happened. It was mm -hmm. something sort of known. What, what was that experience like to sort of walk through that? Well, it, it, yeah, it, it, um, it, it was controversial and people said, well, you know, um, why do we have to apologize? We didn't do anything. Well, first of all, I think that's a pretty innocent statement to say. I think it's it's a pretty unaware statement that you haven't done anything. Um, yeah. You know, now I, I mean, I can remember uh, I saw Dr. King's speech, the Lincoln Memorial on television live in 1963. Uh, mm -hmm. I had just surrendered to the ministry six weeks before that. And so um, as I watched it, you know, I, I, fortunately for me, and I'm very grateful for this, um, I was always taught at home that racism was a sin. Um, some of my colleagues that I went to seminary with were not taught that at home. Mm -hmm. uh, they had more to overcome than I did. I mean, they were taught racism. I was not. Um, uh, if I had ever used a racial slur, I would have been spanked at home. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the the idea that... Um, that you know, what, doctor, what that speech did for me is I, I'm, it, it made me understand that um, never again would I, by my silence, be um, misinterpreted as agreeing with a racist statement or a racist act. And, and so I have, I've spoken up and, you know, caused a great deal of consternation uh, at one, um, one extended family reunion, um, my youngest daughter, um, one of the older men told a race, a joke that had racial slurs in it. 
And my youngest daughter, who was then 16, said, I can't believe you would tell a joke like that. You're a deacon in the Baptist church. I can't believe you would use that word. So his wife came to me and said, have you talked to your daughter about how she talked to my husband? I said, yes. I told her how proud I was of her. that She did exactly what she'd been taught to do, to never by her silence be uh, misinterpreted as agreeing with what was being said. Have you talked to your husband about his non-biblical and sinful language? From then on, I was known as the liberal in, in the group. Um, and if that's what being a liberal means, then I, I'm more than happy to be one. Um, uh, I, I just think that there, we needed to, under, to, to make it very clear that we were sorry for the way our forefathers acted. Uh, I am sorry. I, I mean, it grieves me, the pain and the suffering that it caused. And I must confess that until um, that consultation, I had never thought about it in exactly those terms. Um, the distinction between white people and white Christians. That, and, and I understood, I mean, it would be particularly difficult to be, if you're a Christian, to be discriminated against and treated badly by other Christians just because of the color of your skin. Um, and, you know, if the church had been the prophetic voice that it should have been, the whole history of our nation would be different than it, than it was. I mean, you know, um, um, you know, the South was the least Christian part of the country until the Great Awakening. So when slavery was started, I mean, you know, New England was was where the where, was was very strongly religious. Uh, you know, the old joke was that that the Puritans came to New England to do good, and the, and the Southerners came to the South to do well. Um, we were the least church and the least religious part of the country until the Great Awakening, and then we became the most religious part of the country, and it remained so. Um, and, it, and it is, I think it's a, um, it's not a very good witness. In fact, I think it's a terrible witness that in the most religious part of the country, we've had the most segregation, the most legalized segregation anyway. The resolution, I mean, this resolution has lived on. I mean, it's something we're still talking about, obviously. I mean, we're 25 years from the, the, uh, passing yeah, the moving of from, moving still from third person it. to first, moving from third person to first person evidently, um, got people's attention. Yeah. And by the way, by the way, we made the bottom fold of the front page of the New York times. Wow. It's a pretty good, pretty big deal. Yeah. yeah. Well, but like, how does it still apply to us? It's it still, it feels like it's still speaking to us today. I mean, we're in this moment right now. We're interviewing you, you know, here in the middle of June, we've had a lot of racial tension in America over the last few weeks in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. Like, what is it still telling us today and how can we maybe still apply some of those principles? And, and I, I think this line of thinking that you're talking about and, and how we are, are working across racial divisions in America, like what does that mean for us today? Well, I think it means that we've got a long way to go. Um, and, you know, I, I challenge my, my um, white friends all the time. How many black friends do you have? Now, not people you work with, uh, not people that uh, you may go to school with, but people that you socialize with, you know, people that you socialize with outside of work. Um, and I get this sheepish look, sort of like, well, not very many. And I said, you know, if you're going to have those, you're going to have to reach out and you're going to have to take the initiative because we are very complicated people. Sometimes we don't say what we mean. Sometimes we don't mean what we say. So we said, well, well let's get together, but we don't really mean it. You know, um, we need to, and we may need to ask more than once before people are convinced that, yeah, they want to, they want us to go out, you know, husband and wife go out together or families go out together. Uh, we need to cultivate those friendships. I, and I, I do think that 
um, pastors establishing, you know, consciously establishing friendships um, and letting letting your people see you and your wife with the African-American pastor and his wife in, in social in social settings, not just public exchange. And then have a deacon's retreat. I guarantee you, you have a, a black, a predominantly black church and a predominantly white church have that the deacons get together and have a weekend retreat together. At the end of that weekend, they will be changed. Both groups will be changed. For starters, the blacks will have a greater understanding that white people really don't know. I mean, that, that's one of the, they find it. How can you be that ignorant of this? It's all around us. I said, well, it's all around you. But, you know, a, a bigot doesn't behave toward me the way he behaves toward you. And so we don't see it until you tell us about it. And, and they see our, our anger. They see our outrage. They see our hurt um, at it. And it, 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 it does help them to understand that not all white people behave, believe the way um, the bigots do. Unfortunately, the bigots are still with us. They always will be. You know, um, sin, you know, racism is sin. It's, it's a mm-hmm. sin. It's thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. It's been with us uh, ever since the fall, and it will always be with us. And I remember the one thing Dr. Ballantyne said that I remembered from his speech at, the, at that conference was, he said, racism is just as uh, alive and fresh as it just metastasized out of the garden. And we've got to grab it any way we can grab it. And, and, and hold on to it any way we can hold on to it and wrestle it to the ground any way we can wrestle it to the ground and hold it down. <laughs> I think he's right. All right, last question. Dr. Land, uh, over the past few years, Southern Baptist Convention, we passed a, a, a resolution against the Confederate flag, denouncing the Confederate flag, 2016. Um, right now, we're, we're seeing a lot of discussion about the both Confederate flag you know, being banned from military installations, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. We've, we're talking Civil War monuments, those kind of things. Uh, you've tweeted about the uh, the military bases, the names uh, earlier this week. Talk to us about that. Like, what what is that? The you know we we get a lot of this. It's it's heritage, yeah. not hate, or things like that. Give us just uh, your your thoughts on that and how it relates to this broader conversation. Well, I think you know we have to first of all, if, if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat it. Um, as Mark Twain once said, "History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes." Um, and you know, uh, but I do think that the Confederate um, statues and the Confederate memorials are, are different. Um, I mean, these generals, for instance, in the case of the army bases, these generals were generals who swore an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy and, and took up arms against the United States, whose bases these are. And um, because the military has led the way in integration, I mean, from, from 1948, when Harry Truman integrated the military, the, the military really has set a model for the rest of us as a country. Uh, 22% of the uh, soldiers in the American army are African-Americans, and they make up only 13% of the population. So they're overrepresented in our military. So they're fighting for our freedom. And how much they feel when they live on these bases and they train on these bases that are named after generals that fought to preserve the right of, of, of people to own their ancestors. I mean, it's just intolerable. It's just intolerable. Um, now, when it comes to the Confederate statues, I think they ought to be removed and put in the museum where they can be, they can represent, okay, this is, you know, this, this, this is a statue and it was 
it was up in the town square until this date in history. I think that's probably a good place to end <laughs> is with that sort of proclamation. We are so appreciative for you to come and talk to us. Oh, I'm delighted to Late. do so. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, I, I've been working the whole time I was at the commission. Uh, I was working for racial reconciliation and, and I would say that the two, the two most, most personally satisfying moments in my 25 years at the commission were first when we passed the resolution, the racial reconciliation resolution in 95. And then when Fred Luter was elected president of the Southern Baptist convention, um, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 this, as you know, the presidency is not just an honorific, I mean, that's a position with considerable power. When you elect a man president, you are turning over the keys to the car. And so for Fred Luter to be elected said something really good about us as a people. Well, Dr. Land, thank you again for being with us today. We really appreciate that. There's so much more that we'd love to talk to you about, and uh, we appreciate you again, and, and thanks for joining us. God bless you. That was a great conversation. And, and like he could have really gone on. We could have been there for a couple of hours. I mean, that was literally yeah. one of those things where we just kind of let him start going and it was just story after story after story and he just telling it all it was just amazing and what we what we really set out to do was to say this is you know there's a lot of a lot of analysis you know happens we didn't we we wanted to hear how did this come about and uh he it really did not disappoint so very interesting to hear yes so thank you dr land again for taking the time to to spend with us and to tell us that and to tell Southern Baptist, you know, Kella, there's a lot of, we, we mentioned it in the interview. A lot of our listeners weren't around in the Southern Baptist convention there or weren't present in Atlanta. So a lot of us, it's, it's kind of folklore. We know about the resolution. We know what happened. We know it passed. We've read it, but we don't know what happened to, to lead up to it. So that was a great to hear from Dr. Land. So our resources of the week are related to this as well, Amy. Yes. So my resource of the week is an article that uh, is running. It's kind of running in both Baptist Press and SBC Life uh, because we wanted to make sure that everyone would see it. And uh, it is about the 1995 resolution. Um, David Roach, who really knows a ton about this, he wrote his dissertation dissertation on on, uh, um, on racial reconciliation in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so he had a lot of expertise to bring to this and, and reach out to people. So we're grateful for him for that. Um, and that story is specifically running on, uh, on this day because June 20th is the 25th anniversary. Yeah. And my resource of the week is a first person from Dr. Land. We reached out and asked him to write a first person. So maybe some overlap in what he talked to us about and the first person. But at the same time, I, I highly recommend you take a look at the first person over at Baptist Press as well as the interview that you just listened to. So uh, a big piece of Southern Baptist history happened this week, 25 years ago. Yes. Well, Amy, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Land. Thank you, uh, David Roach, for writing that piece for us and and for just uh, all the people that had a part in that passing in 1995. Gary Frost, we mentioned him in the interview, second vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention, very instrumental in that. Charles Carter was the chairman of the Resolutions Committee. Jim Henry, president of the convention at that time. So a lot of people had a hand in that back in 1995. We're thankful for them. I'm thankful for everybody today 
who's working toward racial reconciliation within the SBC. Uh, those, those five gentlemen that we had this week on the panel uh, with Dr. Floyd. I mean, those guys are on the front lines every day, uh, every week in their churches, in their state conventions, uh, doing the work that they do uh, to reconcile us, not only to Christ, but to one another as well. So uh, that's good to see in the SBC. We're encouraged by that, hoping for more of that in the future. All right, Amy, I'll see you next week. See you next week.